Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. Once again, good morning. Turn our attention to God's Word today in Romans chapter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 20. Uh, by the way, if you still haven't gotten a Romans journal, they're out there. Uh, you can find one in the narthex on the table, uh, right by the mailboxes. Before we read the text, I think it's helpful for us just to remember where we're at. What's Paul been doing? And uh, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we're in a courtroom scene, right? So Paul is having court with all of humanity. It's basically uh, showing... Uh, that all human beings are under the power of sin. He's declared that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are guilty, right? They're guilty and under the power of sin and deserving of God's wrath on the day of His righteous, fair judgment. It's pretty heavy stuff, right? I mean, it's been kind of a challenge to preach through these chapters because as Paul is laying out this kind of trial, this court case against all of humanity is like, oh, this is heavy stuff. It's kind of dark and convicting as Paul is just relentless in showing us our unrighteousness. But you got to see that Paul's doing that, not just because he's not trying to like rub our nose in our mistakes, in our unrighteousness. Uh, What Paul's doing is he's trying to give us a thorough diagnosis of our condition so that we can see the medicine. Does that make sense? Paul's diagnosing us so he can lead us to the place where we will be healed. In fact, he's saying over and over again that we are guilty because he wants to point our eyes to the surprisingly generous thing God has done in Christ, the faithfulness of Jesus shown on the cross, so that through faith in Christ we can be justified. Remember a couple weeks ago? To be justified means to be not guilty, innocent. That's what we're after here. So... um, If I could give this section we're about to read a title uh, in the ESV uh, Bible in your journal, it just says, no one is righteous. I would call it Paul's closing argument. Paul's had this trial against all of humanity, and now here Paul is giving his closing argument before he moves on to the beautiful news of the gospel. And I want you to see that nobody escapes. Nobody gets out with the title of righteous. Everybody's declared to be unrighteous. As I read this ver- these verses 9 through 20, if you've got something to write with, I encourage you to underline words that indicate the universal scope of Paul's argument. In other words, pay attention to how Paul's talking about everyone, everywhere of all time. So be careful to underline words like all or none or no one or not even one or every mouth or the whole world. So be careful to look for that as we read, as Paul shows us the universal um, condemnation here. So chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. 
The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's God's word for us today. Now, if I could sum up what Paul's saying in these verses, it would be that all human beings are under sin and guilty before a holy God. Plain and simple, that's what Paul's saying. So Paul declared this in verse 9, that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are all under the power of sin. And then he goes ahead and he, you'll, you'll see that there's a quotation, a string of quotations there uh, in verses 10 and following. Uh, he's basically quoting from the Psalms, from Ecclesiastes, from the prophet Isaiah to prove his point from the Old Testament that all human beings are guilty as charged. Now the question that I want to hold out to you today, whether you've been in worship for decades, most Sundays, or you're fairly new to Christianity, what I want to hold out to you is this question. Do you agree with Paul? Are you in agreement of the sweeping charges that he gives to all humanity, yourself included? Do you agree not just that everyone else out there in the world is under sin and guilty before a holy God, but do you agree that apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, you are under sin and guilty before a holy God? Do you agree with this? You know, in, in church lingo, we often throw around the word sinner pretty lightly. We say, hey, we're all sinners, you know. Um, that's correct, we are. But I'm not sure that we always know how deep sin actually runs in our hearts, our habits, our words, our actions, our minds. We might think that, you know, being a sinner means we're mostly decent people, but sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we happen to gossip. Sometimes we drink too many beers and say something we regret. And sometimes we yell at our kids. And every once in a while we break our promises or we tell a lie here and there. But those are all just incidental mistakes we make here and there. That sin is a mistake and not actually a power that we're under. I want you to see what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying in verse 9 that all people are under sin. If you've got something to write with, underline that, under sin. He's saying that sin isn't first and foremost something that you do, but instead sin is a condition that we're under. It's not something you have a handle on most of the time, but here and there you lose control. But actually sin is something that infects all of our actions even our good works. In fact, later in Romans, he's going to say that sin is a power that rules people, that sin enslaves people, that sin has dominion over people, that sin deceives people, that sin lives within us, and that sin even wages war against us. If you're a Christian, you know this, right? It's your daily experience of the battle between the old and the new. Basically, what Paul's talking about here is what we call in theology original sin. Think back to your confirmation days. You might remember this. 
There's a difference between original sin and actual sins. Original sin is the sin that has infected our hearts and our minds, and actual sin is sort of like the symptoms that manifest themselves. Original sin means that sin is something we inherit from all humanity before us all the way back to our first parents, the first sinners, Adam and Eve. Original sin means that just like a diseased tree bears rotten fruit, the disease of sin in our hearts actually leads to evil works. Just like a virus causes us to manifest symptoms like fever or cough or chills, so also original sin leads to symptoms like lying and cheating and stealing and gossiping and just all around not caring much about God or others unless it's convenient or advantageous to us. Now, I would say that original sin is, is not a popular doctrine. Uh, we've run into a lot of not popular doctrines these first couple chapters of Romans, and I think original sin's one of them for a few reasons. For one, it just sounds plain negative in a culture that's obsessed with being positive all the time. It's kind of a downer, right? But when Christians talk about being under sin or original sin, we're really just talking about reality, something that we know from experience, something that we know from human history. I mean, we haven't really gotten any better, right? Um, same things that happened 100 years ago are happening today, right? We kind of have this myth in our mind of onward and upward progress. So, for example, before the start of World War I, everybody was thinking about, hey, we're on to something good. The World's Fair was happening around then, all these new inventions, new technology, new knowledge, advances in science and technology, and then boom, World War I, World War II, and it just kind of continues. Uh, I don't think we've gotten any better. We all know that the human heart is sinful, even if it's not fashionable to say so in some circles. I remember hearing the story about the English poet W.H. Auden. It was about 1938 or 1939, and Auden had just recently moved to Manhattan from England. He decided to go to the local cinema in his Manhattan neighborhood to see a movie. Now, in those days, there was no Fox News or CNN or anything like that, and so you would catch little bits of the news during the movie. Before the movie, they'd show a clip of things going on in the world. Now, on this occasion, there was a video of the Nazi stormtroopers invading Poland, bayoneting women and children. The cinema was located in a mostly German neighborhood, and Auden was horrified when many of those people in the theater, educated, cultured people, began to cheer as the Nazis plowed into Poland and killed innocent people. Now, even though Auden was at that time an atheist, he didn't really believe in such thing as actual right and wrong or evil. He thought, you know, that if people just had better education, better resources, they might act differently. But that day he left the theater convinced of two things he was not convinced of before that incident. Number one, that there actually is such a thing as right and wrong, and what he experienced that day was clearly wrong. And number two, that evil dwells in the human heart. Second, I think that original sin is not a popular doctrine because it seems to suggest that being human is a bad thing, even that to be human is to be sin. But that's not the case. When Christians talk about original sin, they're saying that sin is actually something alien to our human nature. It's something that has infected and corrupted our good human nature. And so that sin is unhuman. It's contrary to our nature of what we were created to be. 
See, Christianity has always been careful to separate clearly between who we are created in God's image and what has happened, sadly, to us because of sin. Now, it's interesting that you can't actually say that. You can't say that from the perspective of, say, atheism. If you're an atheist, if you don't believe in God, and if you believe that human beings are here by natural causes only, just by a long process of natural selection, survival of the fittest, then you have to admit that the things that we call sinful, like violence or jealousy or dishonesty or even sexual assault, are all just strategies that human beings use to survive and get ahead. These things are hardwired into our very humanity to help us survive and pass on our genes. And so, other words, from the perspective of atheism, what we often call evil is just part of what it means to be human. And so we have to question if being human is even a good thing. But once again, the Christian faith teaches that original sin is not what it means to be human. It's a corruption of our good humanity. And even though every aspect of our human nature has been corrupted by sin, our mind, our will, our emotions, our words, our actions, nevertheless, being human is such a good thing that the Word became flesh. Being human is such a dignified good thing that the Son of God was born into our human story to redeem and restore our human nature from its corruption to sin. It's a really beautiful picture, that uh, painting that I've seen, uh, that really gives expression to what God has done, the dignity God has shown to us as human beings to redeem this awful thing we call original sin. This is a beautiful picture of Eve. Eve is portrayed as having just sinned, and she's being comforted by Mary, the mother of our Lord. Eve has just eaten the fruit. She's still holding it in her hand. But notice how Mary takes her other hand and places it upon the promise in utero, the fruit of her womb, Jesus our Lord. Original sin is deep and it's pervasive and it's beyond our ability to heal, but the good news of the gospel is that God has intervened in Christ to save us, taking us out from underneath the power of sin and placing us safely in Christ. That's the gospel. So to summarize, Paul is saying that all people are under sin and guilty before a holy God. Now, part of what Paul means by saying we are under sin is that we're not just guilty before a holy God, but we are also completely unable to save ourselves. The punchline is given in verse 20. This is really the culminating thing that Paul's been driving toward from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way now to chapter 3, verse 20. This is the summary of what he's been trying to get you and me to understand. Let's read it together, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, the question I want to hold out before you today for you to think about, to examine in your own heart is this. Do you agree with Paul? Do you agree with the Scriptures that there is absolutely nothing you can do to work your way out of sin and to work your way up to God? Do you agree with Paul? Do you? Do we agree with Paul? You see, when it comes to salvation, the problem of our inability is deeper than we think. 
Paul's talking about our total inability to move toward God or make ourselves righteous. He's talking about our total inability to even lift a, a single finger to do anything for God to make ourselves better. Now, we can do a lot of things in this life, and even those who don't believe in God, who aren't Christians, do some really great things in this world. We can make progress, and we can make great strides in technology and in science and in good laws and just government, but there's something we can't do. We can't heal ourselves. We can't cure ourselves. Let's go ahead and read verses 10 and 11 together because it's verses 10 and 11 where Paul goes deeper into this theme of our inability. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Some people think that they can get right with God by just trying harder, their willpower. I was visiting a nursing home the other day, and in the parking lot, I saw a car with a bumper sticker that said, keep the Ten Commandments. There you go. Simple as that, right? Problem solved, everybody. Just keep the Ten Commandments. Everything's fixed. Now, the bumper sticker has a point. I mean, if everybody kept the Ten Commandments or even just tried to keep the Ten Commandments, wouldn't this world be a better place? Can you imagine a world where nobody stole or committed adultery or gossiped or, or any of those things murdered? It would be a wonderful world to live in, much better than the one we live in. But Paul is saying here in verse 10 that no one is righteous, not one. No one even keeps a single one of the commandments and even when we're trying to keep the commandment, we're often keeping it out of a desire for reward or trying to avoid punishment, not willingly out of love for God and neighbor. Some people think they can get right with God by just knowing more. Maybe if I just know more of the Bible or I just know some more theology or I just think some big thoughts or I get some wisdom. But see, knowing more doesn't necessarily make us better. Remember, the Jewish people had the law written for them and yet they were not righteous, just as the Gentiles had the law written on their heart and yet failed to keep it. The more you know God's commandments, the more you know what you should do and shouldn't do. But the commandments don't actually give you the power to do what you should do or avoid what you shouldn't. Paul says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. In fact, Paul says, no one understands. You see, the commandments command you to fly but they don't give you wings. Only the gospel can do that. The, the commandments, they, they tell you to run, but they don't give you the legs to run. Only the gospel can do that. It's the power of God for salvation. Some people think they can get right with God by trying to find Him, to seek Him, to track Him down. People will grope around in the darkness trying to find God through things like New Age spirituality or meditation or self-help or spiritual practices. But Paul just says straight up in verse 11 that nobody seeks God. I think what he's saying is that so often what people are really seeking for when they say that they're seeking God is they're just looking for a momentary good feeling or a spiritual high, really a spirituality that is self-absorbed and that's more about themselves than about God or the good of others. And so the point I want to just impress upon you and ask you to wrestle with in honesty is this. Do you agree with Paul when he says that when it comes to your salvation, you are completely incapable? Paul is saying that it's not just that we can't. Apart from Christ, we won't. Our will won't. 
Our will is in bondage. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow, especially for those of us, like myself, who grew up going to school assemblies where we were told that we could do anything we wanted if we tried hard and believed in ourselves. Dream big, right? And then real life happens. But here Paul is telling us that when it comes to the most important thing ever, our salvation, we can't. See, we've all grown up being told we can, and now we hear when it comes to the most important thing, we've actually failed before we started. We can't. It's humbling. But if you're willing to humble yourself and admit from the heart that apart from Christ you are under sin and incapable, then God invites you to lift up your eyes and see the one who is able, the one who can and who does accomplish your salvation completely. See, these, if we've been paying attention, these chapters, these last couple weeks in Romans have been a little painful, actually really painful if you take them seriously. But Paul's only doing this painful procedure on us, on our hearts, so that we can spend the rest of Romans rejoicing in the one who does accomplish our salvation by his will, not ours. See, nobody's righteous, Paul says, not even one. The scripture tells us, Romans tells us about the one righteous man, Jesus Christ, who loved you in your unrighteousness and in your being incapable, and he laid down his life for you when you couldn't do anything for him. And he now shares his righteousness with you through faith in his name. God declares you to be righteous, innocent, not guilty through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Friends, that is good news that you will never hear anywhere else except in God's church in the scriptures. No one understands, Paul says, but God, into the darkness of our minds, God has revealed himself to you and given you the knowledge of his Son. And through faith in Jesus, you have been given understanding. In fact, Scripture says you've been given the very mind of Christ, a mind that's being renewed in the Scriptures. Paul says straight up that nobody seeks God, but the Son of God has sought you out and accomplished your salvation while you were seeking sin. While you were seeking sin and self-interest, Christ was going to the cross seeking your soul and seeking your good. And because he has sought you out and made you his own, he has now given you a new heart that's actually able to now seek him. See, the gospel allows us to be honest about how deeply sin is rooted in our hearts because into that honesty comes the saving love of Christ that runs deeper than our sin runs. The gospel allows us to be completely honest about our inability before God because where we can't and where we even won't, God can and actually does. It is finished. I mean, whoever heard of a religion that's only open to those who admit that they can't. But friends, that's Christianity. That's the Christian faith. And you will hear that in no other faith, no other worldview, no other philosophy. It's into our inability that comes the riches of Christ. So what do we do with this? What's the point we take home? How do we respond to this? I can think of two ways, two responses. The first response to what Paul has said today is that we honestly admit to God our inability that we agree with his law, his law which says to us, you must, and the reality that we can't and haven't. 
Can you honestly admit this to God? Can you humble yourself before God and admit to Him plainly, honestly, from the heart, God, I must, but I can't. Maybe up to this point you've thought that Christianity means coming to church every once in a while, trying to stay out of trouble for the most part. Maybe coming to church makes you feel like a good person. Maybe you do it because your parents did or your grandparents did. Maybe it makes your spouse happy and your marriage better. Maybe it's a good example to the kids. Maybe it's a good dose of moral encouragement. But my prayer for you is that in this sermon series that God has absolutely wrecked your own self-righteousness so that you might receive the righteousness that comes not from you but from Christ because that's the only righteousness that stands on the last day. Everything else is burned up. Perhaps for the first time, you have begun to see what God's law is really asking from you, and perhaps for the first time, you've seen how you have failed to give Him what He demands, and you will be held accountable. But there's an invitation here to admit to Him that you haven't kept His law, and you can't be justified by it, and that you need a lifeline. You need Jesus. As I said before, the only way into the Christian faith is to say, I can't. The second response, though, is to rejoice. You see, our inability is an excellent occasion to rejoice in the ability of Christ. In fact, this is at the heart and the center of the whole Christian life. That's why we gather for worship. That's why we're singing today, is we're rejoicing not in our ability, but in the midst of our inability, we rejoice and sing and celebrate the ability of the will of God that has done all things necessary for our salvation. We boast in the work of Christ and in His work alone. And when we stumble and fall through the weakness of our flesh, as we often do in this life, we don't despair. We don't remain stuck in guilt and shame. We confess our sins, we admit our inability, and we rejoice in Jesus Christ, who has perfectly worked our salvation down to the last T crossed and the last I dotted. And it's from this rejoicing in Christ and His ability that we do every good work we do. Amen.